Most decisions are made in a sense of time and space, moving away from something or towards something in reaction rather than response. Response requires attention, presence, being present. Responding in time and in space as life itself. Why one reacts rather than responds is due to life and death. I might die in the next moment if I respond. But if I react, hopefully I will live whether you do or not, whether he does or not, whether she does or not, whether they do or not. I will, I hope. But really we're not hoping, we're more fearing. I fear if I don't react, something will happen that isn't about me controlling the universe. <clears throat> and the experience in the next moment is one of incomplete satisfaction. One is not realized in the next moment. One is karmically existing according to what one has done. Good, bad, ugly, beautiful. And internally one feels this reaction like a coiled wire or a spring. Well, you know, this is why I did it. Well, you know, I had to, you know, you know, I'm here. I don't care what you think. Well, okay, now what, I'm sorry I interrupted you. What did you think? <clears throat> and then we occupy the sense that we're God controlling the next moment and the next and the next and the space of our incarnation and what's around us and we are not fulfilled. We're not really on our path. So virtually every spiritual path throughout all of the world's spiritual and religious traditions embody a principle of responding to the universe, the creator, God, that receiving and through responsible love being in the next moment in our breath in all the cells of our body to the best of our ability responsible in relationship back to the universe the divine the creator that great one whatever we call him her that principle and when we embody this in our heart of hearts as ourselves alive, we are embodying our true name, as Thich Nhat Hanh would state this, call me by my true name. And we are in a state of wonder, and we are attuned to the ineffable mystery that is ecstatic and holy. And often it's said, only that is holy. May I be a child of such holiness. When we enter this space and we establish a principle allowing others to inhabit this space beside us, we are holy family. We are representing our path upon this earth to the best of our ability. And then in the next moment, the miraculous occurs within us and within other beings and all around us. 
And we are a child of God in this, a child of heaven. And we are allowing the realization for all other beings that they are also, that we are of that. Whether we pay attention to it or not, we are all always of that. Why would we embody any other question toward the next moment? This is the foolishness of our hatred, our fear, our anxiety, our issues with power and fear. So I would like to bring forward a story and an idea that I think is helpful with how argumentative the time continues to be across the earth. There is a direction of eternity as we each and all face the current world situation. Who are we? Who is one? What can one being do representing all beings? And setting a course, a direction of eternity into the next moment and the next and the next. Because, you know, this is how a civilization is formed, is it not? I remember learning languages as a young girl and a young adolescent woman or human being and being astonished when there would be a word that doesn't really <clears throat> exist in English and having a teacher or a professor try to articulate the sentiments of this mysterious word. And all of a sudden, someone in the class would sigh or <gasps> call out in astonishment. <sighs> they would realize the word that Mr. Callie was trying to teach us or Madame Sclafane was trying to teach us. And it was wondrous. And we were not afraid. Oh, a translation point of heaven on earth through a beloved teacher, such intimacy. No one could ever take this away from us. This is not for trade on the marketplace. This is not weaponized. This is the, the movement of the direction toward the heart of hearts, one's inner voice, the companion's inner voice of the being beside them, all of our neighbors, every human being, all animals and plants and creation. And then each individual is like a star, singular, filled with light and astonishing multiplicity of dimensions beyond any of our understanding, from a rose to a wild animal, to a domesticated pet, to a human being. And yet together, we create an ensemble of a planetary system, which is capable of functioning, feeding one another, creating roads of transportation for everyone collaborative, miraculous gestures which create a bouquet of existence, fragrant, beautiful in color, 
and form. We take photographs of these images, a bridge, a couple standing at a park being married, a day in May of ginkgo leaves, a day a month earlier of cherry blossoms, <clears throat> or in other nations, other blossoms. And we think, I never knew such a tree. Look at this photograph or this painting or this drawing of a child. And when we have this understanding, heaven, no matter what we call heaven, and our heart of hearts, and the cells of our body becoming become a living monument of embodied peace, a harmonic, which blesses everyone and everything. I wish this were realized in all beings. I pray and practice in that manner. So this is my idea at this argumentative time of birdsong. <clears throat> I was reading an article in the New York Times Magazine, and I'm going to insert a few little stories in here. I first encountered the New York Times Magazine as a young girl, woman, in New York State in New Jersey, <clears throat> where I was raised. And my father, whom I adored, would sit on Sunday morning in his glory, and he would love nothing better than to have his coffee and open the New York Times Sunday newspaper. And it was a great extravagance to him to have it delivered, or in the years when we lived in New Jersey, just outside of New York City, he would drive over, pick up fresh bagels and danishes and cream cheese and come home, and we would have fruit salad and orange, fresh orange juice and gorgeous uh, omelets and, and uh, bagels and cream cheese in our dining room. My mother would set a splendid special Sunday table and my father would sit resplendently with his beloved New York Times, which he would have bought. Sometimes he would be so happy to obtain it, he would go over early and pick it up on Saturday night. If we were going out to some event in New York City, we would be lingering after a ballet or a play or a late night dinner. And he would stop and some wonderful older gentleman would be there with his papers newly delivered. My father would jump out of the car, purchase one, put it in the car and drive home, knowing on Sunday morning when he arose, it was already waiting for him. It brought him immense joy. His father and his grandfather loved the newspaper. My mother's father loved the newspaper. So when I sit with John, what does he love? Nothing more on a Sunday than to open his Sunday New York Times, section by section, and he will finish one and pass it to me. And then there's the, there's the Sunday New York Times magazine filled with a multiplicity of interesting articles always telling me something going on in our human collective. What are we, the people of the world, thinking about? What are we admiring? What are we aspiring to become? What are we hating and judging and ripping to shreds? What are we advertising? And so I go through it and I read various segments of it. <clears throat> and so this past weekend, I opened the magazine and I read a wonderful article, which surprised me and touched parts of me so deeply. It was written by a woman named Christine Smallwood. And it was about a woman writer, an American writer named Lilliad, Lydia Millett. Lydia Millett, she's a novelist. She's also an environmentalist. Millett lives in Tucson, Arizona. 
But what captured me reading the article was uh, sort of anguish and delight in the beginning paragraphs. The Both of the writers, Millet and Smallwood, are, they have wit and they have uh, the wisdom of humility, knowing that they are studying life rather than being masters of life. And so there's a there's a mood in the article and in the conversations between the women Smallwood writes about where that wit and that seeking are evident. And so Smallwood begins with writing about Millet's childhood where she's visiting cousins on the eastern seaboard, which is where I was raised. <clears throat> and she sees a small toad. And if you grow up in certain parts of the eastern seaboard, they are everywhere at certain times of the spring. And I used to love to catch them when they were tiny babies. And um, I would be allowed to have a pail or put them down in the in the box of our um, the boxes around our our basement, the the window boxes below, and there would be a little bit of grass in there and pebbles, and I could make a little terrarium for them, and then I would be astonished at how they escaped in the nighttime, and of course my father would have come out and rescued them, but I would be allowed to set up a little house for them with my doll chairs and the pebbles, you know, and I would put a little cup of water for them and and ask my father what do toads eat, you know, and he'd say, oh, they'll, they'll be able to find the food. So I'd put a little dish as if there was pretend food for them and have my little family of eight toads, five babies and two parents and an uncle or something. And I would enjoy this so immensely my entire childhood. The to this day when I saw a toad uh, this past summer when I was back on the eastern seaboard, I was completely completely delighted, absolutely comprehensively delighted, and pointed out to John, look, there's a, there's a, there's a toad like the ones of my childhood. And so <clears throat> when, when Lilith went back to the eastern seaboard as a girl, visiting her cousins, <clears throat> Lydia, I'm sorry, when Lydia Millet went back visiting her cousins, what happened? She saw a toad and she stepped on it, but she didn't step on it accidentally. She picked up her foot and she intentionally stepped on it and squished it to kill it. And she observed her own reaction and it transformed her life. What have I done? And from that point on, she started studying dimensions beyond her own brutality or beyond her own reaction transforming herself into responding. And she continued her study of nature and then writing novels. And so recently she's written a book called Dinosaur. And she talks in it of a number of things. I haven't read the book yet. I've just read the aspects through the article. But she addresses many of the questions which are causing to me the arguments on the earth right now. We have huge storms. We have oceans which are rising. So I spoke to a person in California this past year who was lamenting to me how unfair it was that they were losing the land on the sea that their family owns. We've already lost 12 feet. It's not fair. And I said, well, the, the ocean is coming in. I know, but it's just not right. And the woman wanted somebody to do something to make reparations to her about the loss of land. And my answer was that perhaps her family needed to live in a place 
where nature was moving more quietly, more slowly, not in the oceanic movements of the sea toward the shore. And she said, I know, I know, I've known for a long time. I just don't want to leave how much I love it there. And so she was aware, but she could not have control over the next moment and the next and the next. <clears throat> so as we regard the younger generations and their knowledge that the earth is changing as it always does, so do our bodies, every breath, every moment, there is a sense of people often thinking, I want to go down with the ship or do 10 million things before something horrible happens. And instead of being adequately mindful and appreciative in responsible responding to the present moment, wonderful moment, into the next present moment, alive, wonderful moment, in the late Technocon's beloved poetic phrases, present moment, wonderful moment, we tend to react, if I only had that handbag, if he would just not be like this. And we come in just like Lydia Millet with the toad, and we try to squelch the life force out of other beings around us, not literally kill them, but stop them in their tracks until we prevail. But I wanted to be on that airplane. I wanted to have those things. Why aren't I this person? And that's not really, I would say, what we want or mean, not really who we are if we take the next breath and respond. But we must go through the grief of the loss of power and greed that moves through us in our reactions, in our asleepness, like warriors fighting. The weapons, the battlefield, my money, my fame, my ego, you, me, all of that disappears and becomes the body of what in Hinduism is called yoga maya the body of the divine feminine when it is asleep. When she awakens, that receptive part of us is like a window where iridescent light and sound are pouring through us, the music of the spheres, the light, the celestial light of all grace represented. And we look toward the divine in you and you and you. And we respond from our heart of hearts as ourselves, a child of that. Oh, here we are. Again, resplendently of heaven, responding. And then the next moment occurs. So just as I was wondering what happened to my little toads at night, where did they go? My father would say, oh, they must have climbed out. And I'd go, Daddy, how could they? The... The wall of the little window box is so high and my little baby toads are so little, only several days old. He, he would just be with his newspaper and say, well, they just must have until I was old enough to realize the great love he had for me that he might go and clear out two window boxes after my having had the most delightful evening 
or afternoon playing with the toads and feeding them and setting up their little home. My father cared for me and every one of those little creatures, shepherding me so we might have this conversation today, you and I. Such a father. May I be such a daughter worthy of that love for all of nature that he taught me so profoundly about. He of the New York Times and of other magazines and journals and newspapers and academics and scholars, and educators. So what did Lydia continue writing about? Well, she went on to state at the very end of the article a quote from her book. You were made of two people only at the very last instant. Before that, of a multiplication so large it couldn't be fathomed. That's how you were created. You were conceived in such a way. Millet's character states, you were made of two people only at the very last instant. Before that, of a multiplication so large it couldn't be fathomed. So as your next breath comes and your next gesture comes, if it is reactive against the confusion of the world that doesn't know what to do next, you are greater than that from what Millet is directing you toward. You are from something more profound. You come from Walt Whitman's phrases of the largeness of the beings we are. We come from that. And she talks about <clears throat> the Arizona desert in which she lives. And it's the first area I ever left home to visit. I received a science fellowship as a very young woman, age 14. And my parents decided, debated, was it safe to let me go? And a wonderful man named Kenneth Torgerson directed the program at the University of Arizona. So I had a fellowship to spend the summer there. Went on my first airplane ride of my life from Kennedy Airport out to Arizona, Tucson, where he was there to pick me up, to fetch me from the plane with his assistant, this wonderful woman who, with her husband, ran the wildlife program at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, which Millet and the journalists write a great deal about in this article. So what did I see? Saguaro cacti, a whole forest of them. That's where I spent my summer, living among them, learning all kinds of things about them, seeing tiny owls living in them, being in the heat, being in the bird song of the desert. And they talk about and write about in the article how saguaro live longer than we do, don't develop their first arm till they're 50 years of age, don't reach a mature dimension of height and behavior till they're 150 years old. And they go on long, long after that. Well, as the desert itself began, commenced in creation and evolved, the saguaro were there. And then what happened? They disappeared. They became almost extinct. 
10, 15 million years ago. Interesting. We're thinking now, what about us? What about the Earth? What's happening? Well, in such a cycle, 10 to 15 million years ago, as they developed, all of a sudden, they died out. And woodland plants came in, prairie grasses, scrubby bushes, bushes and trees of the savannas and the more moist deserts at that time. And then they returned. At the time they returned, most of the mammals, the large mammals of the world, disappeared. So we stop and think, wait a minute, what about me? What about us? What's going to happen to us? Go, well, all these mammals went extinct, but the sorrow came back. And then the two women state something so simply but so profoundly. The dinosaurs became extinct, and that's how birds were formed. The birds arrived when the dinosaurs left. Every bird song you hear is here after the dinosaur. Every musical note of every tiny bird of the hawk I heard screaming as it flew down the cliffs in Austin where I was this past weekend for John's birthday. He would fly and I'd go, listen, there's your hawk. Listen, John, listen, Elise, there's the hawk. Every sound we listen to with such reverent love and the aspiration of the bird's flight, the colors of their feathers, the natures of their lifespans, their nests, their eggs, their young, their pairing when we see mates on a tree, we have beautiful cardinals here all year long, birds that migrate through this area. Some I've seen like the tundra swans are just etched in my heart, which I've seen in other parts of the country. They don't really come through where I am now. Right, birds, they're written all across my soul. Well, they weren't here when the dinosaurs were. So as we enter this holiday season, of beautiful traditions and argument. I have friends who celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, friends who celebrate Columbus Day as a day off of school or work or of tradition. Then I have friends who argue about it. And I know two women who won't speak to each other because they have such different positions about that particular holiday. We have people who celebrate Thanksgiving in the United States, people who resent it, people who celebrate um, various Muslim holidays and Jewish holidays and Christian holidays and Asian holidays toward the New Year, the Western New Year, the Oriental New Year. And we tend to say, oh, I don't celebrate that one, or oh, that's quaint, or I love that and I don't like this. But there is bird song, heart to heart, shared by us all. If every human being were turned in the direction of he, she, that, which created the birds. What a song that would be. 
that silence born into life that is called the birds is a conference which shows us all the civilization we're to become. May we light a candle and offer our hearts to the bird song of the human race as we go forward into this holiday season toward the new year.